Sherry, I'll go ahead and get us going here. Something a little bit more. Are we good? Yeah. In my price range. Wonderful. I know our fellow commissioners are on a timetable, so. <laughs> oh, that's Kurt. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, where everybody gets quiet. Just waiting for the go ahead from Sherry again. We're good? We're good? All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, the Joint City Commission, uh, County City and Commission meeting on January 17, 2024. Uh, we got quite a crowd here. Uh, pretty good. Pretty excited to see that, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, now I'll have Sherry go ahead and give us the rundown. Thank you, Mayor. Um, if you are attending this meeting via Zoom, please ensure you are muted and your video is off if you are not actively participating in the meeting. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat and all chats go directly to the meeting host. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Sherry. And uh, to go ahead and get us started off, um, we'll have a couple of welcomes. I'll make mine brief so I give enough room for uh, Commission Chair Willie. Um, thank you all again for coming. Um, I know this, everybody, this is a vital interest to everybody, and I'm, I'm heartened to see how, how many people are interested in to see exactly what, uh, what this plan entails, because I know it'll help us all. So um, I, I think this is a good sign going forward. So like I said, I'm going to be brief. Yeah, just welcome everyone, and uh, we're excited to have the conversation and have that together and see uh, representatives from most of the stakeholders on our stakeholder group that we're likely to see on our slides. So uh, it's exciting. I, I know that there have been a lot of great voices involved creating the plan that gets to this point. So thank you all. All right. And with that, I'll go ahead and get us started. Uh, looks like our only agenda item on the docket everybody's interested in is receive a presentation for a place for everyone plan to end chronic homelessness in Lawrence and Douglas County. Looks like Jill's up. I'm going to queue up the PowerPoint. Make sure, do I need to screen share? Okay, sorry. I'm here um, as the Assistant County Administrator. That's my, my title um, for Douglas County, but um, I'm a member of a collective stakeholder group um, that's represented by many, of the, many, if not most, of the folks that are in this, group, this room that have been responsible for developing the plan that you're going to hear about today. Um, many of you have heard about this plan previously, um, and we're happy to come, with you, come to you today with what we consider to be the final version of this plan before we move into the operational phase of it. <clears throat> 
So some background on this. This work started in April of 2021 with a summit that was convened by KDADS. That's the Kansas Department of Aging and Disability Services. And the desire of that um, convening was to organize um, Lawrence and Douglas County and our different partners around developing some solutions um, and ideas to solve homelessness in Douglas County. Um, we quickly um, got together all of the agencies that in any way, shape, or form have any services or stake in housing and homelessness services in Douglas County and started meeting on a monthly basis um, with um, a group that we've just called the stakeholders. So that stakeholder group um, met from on, on a monthly basis from June of 2021 up until December of 2023. We had regular monthly meetings. Um, we had focus groups, um, and those focus groups were all organized um, following the two needs assessments that I think many of you are familiar with. And those are, um, one was a, a housing and homelessness systems needs assessment that was performed by um, the KU Center for Public Partnerships and Research, and then a supportive housing needs assessment that was performed by the Corporation for Supportive Housing. We use those two needs assessments um, to just have the framing and information that we needed to then dive into the development of a strategic plan that you're gonna see today. Um, so in July, of 2022, our work groups were organized around the five focus areas that you're going to hear about um, that are outlined in the plan today. Um, in May and April of 2023, we presented you all with a draft plan. Um, and previous to that, um, we'd had a series of listening sessions that many of you and folks in this room and community members participated in um, over the series of the spring. And um, we use the feedback from those sessions to continue to improve on our plan, firm up areas that were of um, concern to community members, um, that were areas of concern to members of the stakeholder group, and were responsive to the feedback that we got from each of you when we last met with you. Um, so some of those things I hope you'll see today, one of the biggest ones um, that the request that you all made of us when we last met with you was to provide some cost estimates for the plan. So we've got some of that in here. Um, and we can ask, we, we'll be happy to answer any questions about some of the specifics that went into those estimates. But they are estimates. Um, but we do feel like we have a good amount of information to back them up. Um, so uh, I mentioned the community conversations that were had, uh, had in the revision to the materials. And that brings us up to where we are today. So this is a listing of um, all of the organizations that are included in our stakeholders group. Um, and I'm just going to ask um, anybody that's in this room that's been a part of this work, um, just please stand up. <laughs> a round of applause. I'm really proud of this group. Yeah, we did have. Um, some consultants come in to do those two needs assessments, but we did this work together. We didn't bring a consultant in to facilitate this work. We did this group, this work together. Um, and I think we're all really proud of that work. And I'm really grateful that as many folks showed up today um, to represent our work. So a place for everyone. Our objectives are by 2028, we will create a system that achieves functional zero through policy systems and environmental changes. All Douglas County residents will have access to the fundamental right of safe, accessible, and attainable and affordable housing. And that homelessness is a rare and brief occurrence. I'm going to toggle real quickly. And I'm going to show you, um, there's a, the video that we have that summarizes this work. Um, give me just a second to share screen. Oh. 
sure I'm doing this the right way. Oh, I just had it. I want to make sure I, I'm not sure I'm going to have it right this time. The city of Lawrence, Douglas County, and other community partners are collaborating on a plan to end homelessness in our community, which we're calling a place for everyone. We're working to reach functional zero for Douglas County, which means homelessness is a rare and brief occurrence. Imagine that our work to reach this goal is like building a home. We've established five work areas that we'll focus on as we build it. To get started on our house, we'll need a strong foundation. The foundation of our plan is equity and inclusion. It informs every aspect of our work. We know that homelessness disproportionately impacts women, black, indigenous, and other persons of color in our community. We've shaped our plan to focus on these populations at every level of policy and decision-making. Our systems are the infrastructure holding our plan together. The systems we're putting in place help us gather an accurate picture of where things stand so we can purposefully address this challenge. With our foundation and infrastructure in place, we move on to the most important and most used part of the house, the main level, affordable housing. Our affordable housing goals are to increase the amount of affordable rental and home ownership properties and improve access to affordable housing that already exists. That keeps people in Douglas County who struggle with housing affordability from plunging further into housing instability. Now we can build up to the second floor of our home, supportive housing. An increase in supportive housing, especially permanent supportive housing, is needed to serve community members who have the most difficulty remaining housed. Our goals are to increase permanent supportive housing units dedicated to individuals and families and to increase transitional housing units for individuals with substance abuse disorders or mental illness. Finally, we have the Emergency Shelter and Services work area, which represents an important but less used part of our house. Our goals for this work include increasing available emergency shelter capacity with innovative solutions like the village and developing a street outreach team to serve individuals, including women and children. With the combined effort of more than a dozen agencies working together on a place for everyone, chronic homelessness will come to an end in our community. A lot of thanks to um, the city's communications team for helping put that video together. Um, I think it's a great summary of um, or illustration of, of the plan. And I think many of you remember that we were really, really intentional. Um, the, the house metaphor is really appropriate, um, but I just want to mention also, you know, also that we're really intentional with the way that the focus areas are, are, are organized. Um, we lead with equity. It's followed by, because we want to be upstream, it's followed by affordable housing. What follows after that is supportive housing. Then you see systems and you see emergency shelter. That's a hierarchy based on where we think we can focus efforts upstream to have maximum benefit uh, downstream. Um, 
So our goals, um, all of our ladders work up to these three goals, um, that we're going to have increased affordable housing, increased emergency shelter and services, and increased supportive, service, supportive housing. This is a uh, view of our current situation um, and gives you a sense of the, the housing needs continuum um, so that just acknowledges that to cater to the that we need to cater to the diverse needs of community members based on a variety of with that variety of housing options that need to be made available so you can see emergency shelter at one end of the continuum um, all the way to the opposite end of the continuum um, that's market based market rate housing and everything that falls within between is what we know is needed to meet our objectives here are five focus areas that we mentioned and we're gonna take a dive into each of those focus areas. Um, I wanna mention that in your packet, you should have gotten a abbreviated version of this plan and then an, a full version of this plan. Um, what you're gonna, you're gonna hear from um, our, our leaders in each of these areas, and I hope that we can wait till the end for questions, but we can try to, it, it, it's, a, it's how you all wanna handle it, but I think we're prepared to wait for questions at the end. But um, to, for the equity and inclusion, I'm gonna hand it off to Marielle and Lacey. Hi, commissioners. Uh, my name is Marielle Ferrello, and this is Lacey Rowe. <clears throat> we are the co-leads for the equity and inclusion portion of the strategic plan. Um, as mentioned at the beginning of this presentation and in the video, we view equity and inclusion as the foundation for the entire strategic plan. We know that in order for this plan to be successful, we must look at all of our strategies and action steps with the intention and practice of including all members of our community, especially those who have been historically and intentionally left out of the conversation, planning and benefits of housing. We see equity and inclusion not just as a label or an aspiration, but as a necessity in building the abundance we all deserve in Douglas County. As many of you know from either personal experience or have discovered through the homeless needs assessment, racial and gender disparities greatly intersect homelessness and housing instability. As you can see from this slide, we have determined key demographics that we know are experiencing the highest barriers in access to services and housing. We see these populations not only in need of service, but as community members that need to be the forefront of this conversation. The closest, those closest to the problem are closest to the solution. If we truly believe that phrase, we can not only see these populations as folks experiencing marginalization, but folks we need to center and place in spaces where they can influence our strategic plan. We must become collaborators with those who know what they need rather than decide what they need for them. This is our goal as the Equity and Inclusion Group, to ensure folks are not only being served, but that we are breaking down the systems that cause the most harm and listening to folks who know how to solve these issues and supply them with resources to resolve the issues. I'm gonna go ahead and hand over uh, the mic to Lacey to talk a little bit more about the updates to our portion of the strategic plan. Thank you, Marielle. Hi everyone, my name is Lacey Rowe. I'm the Director of Community Engagement for the Lawrence Community Shelter and the Co-Chair for the Equity Work Group. Um, so our goals are the same as they were last time we presented the draft strategic plan, including the goals to define equity objectives clearly for all areas of the strategic plan, target systemic inequities, and establish paid roles for people with lived experience, including the creation of a lived, lived experience advisory board. 
Now, I won't read every bullet point here since those are easy to reference, but I'd like to focus on talking about where we've made progress and where we've added revisions since the last presentation. So our strategies are also the same as before, but we've added some action steps that you can find in the full version of the strategic plan. Those new action steps include make easy read versions of resources available so that information is more widely accessible for people with different needs. Um, identify facilitators and resources to support ongoing community engagement sessions, specifically for folks with lived experience. Recommend additional direct financial assistance programs aim aimed at preventing homelessness and promote training and policies that are LGBTQ inclusive and gender affirming. Um. Those are all the new action steps. Currently, our work group has also divided into two subgroups in order to streamline the work in, in achieving those objectives. These subgroups include the lived experience planning group and big projects planning group. For the lived experience subgroup, we are still in the early stages of our planning. A lived experience compensation policy has been passed for the county. And so far, we've got a couple of people or a few new people that have brought, been brought into existing work groups. Our subgroup is beginning to look at recruitment strategies and reaching out to other existing advisory boards for guidance on how to get started and how to set people up for success. Um, I'll hand it back over to Marielle for our other subgroup updates. We're passing it back and forth and I think doing a good job. So um, in addition to lived experience, the goal here is, as I mentioned, not only having a seat at the table, but giving people and empowering them to make decision and make choice because this will directly impact and affect their, affect their lives. Um, our additional subgroup that we have begun operationalizing is big projects. Um, this is <clears throat> primarily in collaboration with the affordable housing group in discussing um, some programmatic uh, ideas that we've had. One of them was presented at uh, the Affordable Housing Advisory Group uh, where we discussed um restorative housing models and discussion of reparations to specific populations, specifically the black community, and how uh, we provide housing intentionally to them and help build back neighborhoods that have been historically marginalized or redlined. So that is something we're very excited to collaborate with in the affordable housing group. Uh, additionally, throughout the term of the strategic plan, we will be looking at different ways we can equitably infuse our ideas and practices um, so we can be overall this idea of foundation and equity and inclusion and that will just create the diversity that we need to see within our program that will reflect the populations that need the most support. So that is our piece and handing it over to affordable housing. Thank you. Mayor, just real quick, um, we did turn on the TV um, in the lobby and there are um, some extra seats if anyone standing would like a seat. Thank you, Sherry. <laughs> Slowly raising it. <laughs> Uh, good afternoon, Commissioners. I'm Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence, and I am joined with my partner, Gabby Sprague, <laughs> and together we co-convene the Affordable Housing Workgroup for this plan. We will be presenting on the Affordable Housing Goals and Strategies, 
And to begin, I'd like to provide some framing. Um, as we considered our affordable housing goals, we took into account the unique needs of both renters and homeowners in our community. We intentionally considered goals that would ensure affordable and accessible housing access to those in our community who face the largest disparities with housing instability, namely people of color, um, single female head of household, and uh, people with disabilities and elders. As we know, affordable housing is the solution to homelessness. It fosters economic prosperity, and it's a basic human right. And yet, Douglas County does not have enough housing that is affordable and accessible for people who live and work in our community. Housing costs continue to rise for both renters and homeowners, resulting in an increase in evictions and homelessness and a decrease in homeownership. Meanwhile, wages have not kept pace with the rising cost of rent, utilities, interest rates, and home sales prices, which has increased the number of households who experience housing stress and insecurity. Housing stress is defined as spending more than 30% of your household income on housing expenses. It's important that we are always considering those two factors together, wages and the cost of housing, when we think about housing affordability. A housing wage is what a household must afford to, um, is what a household must earn to afford rent at fair market value without spending more than 30% of their income in housing expenses. The housing wage in Douglas County for a two-bedroom apartment is $18.27 an hour. That's what somebody must earn an hour to afford a market rate two-bedroom apartment in our community. And that's more than double the state minimum wage. This means that even when working full-time, many community members in Douglas County and our heavily service care, service and care oriented industries cannot afford the cost of living here. Almost half of renters and almost a, a quarter of homeowners in Douglas County experience housing insecurity, meaning that they are just one emergency or rent increase away from homelessness. Affordable housing therefore both prevents and is a solution to homelessness. This slide shows our affordable housing goals, which as Gabby will discuss in the next slide, um, will take both policy change and housing production to accomplish. So our goal is to have 1,500 new rental units in the next five years and 200 new home ownership units. Of those total units, 100 will be fully ADA accessible and 500 of them will have at least three bedrooms in order to uh, accommodate the housing needs of families. While those numbers may seem ambitious, it still won't meet the total need for affordable housing as defined and identified in the 2018 Lawrence Housing Market Analysis. That study showed that at that time in Lawrence alone, there were 5,200 cost burden renters who needed accessible and affordable housing. The report demonstrated, demonstrated that there's a need for 2,000 affordable units for elders, 1,500 new units for people with disabilities that are fully accessible, 
and 1,300 new units for female single um, head of household. In addition, 500 households with people with disabilities needed accessibility modifications to stay safely and affordably housed. Finally, that study showed 2, 000, a need for 2,000 new home ownership units based on current renters who would like to buy and would be good candidates. Our final goal is to establish policy and system changes that realign current power imbalances that result in inequitable access to affordable housing and inequitable access to social capital and to those in formal positions of power. These power imbalances continue to tip the scale in favor of the privileged minority in our community, specifically white middle and upper class homeowners. For example, recently a large affordable housing development that would have produced over 250 new units in our community was prevented from moving forward just in the last few months. Um, it was prevented from moving forward after their request for rezoning was denied by the Lawrence Planning Commission. The commission heard from a very well-organized group of neighborhood homeowners. However, that, however large that group may have been, it was notably not representative of the Brook Creek neighborhood in which the development was proposed. Not one public commenter lived in one of the several trailer park communities in the neighborhood. Not one commenter lived in one of the many um, income-based, affordable rental or homeownership units that had been developed in that neighborhood. The lack, would have, the lack of equitable representation was apparent in many, many ways, and yet was a poignant example of how a large group of those with substantially more relative power than the would-be residents of the affordable housing development were able to stop a vital development from moving forward. For us to be successful, therefore, we must show strong leadership and be mindful of the inclusion or the exclusion of those with lived experience and those most impacted having a voice and include them in public forums and make sure that they have a vote on public boards and commissions. At this point, I will turn it over to Gabby to discuss our strategy for achieving these goals. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, my name is Gabby Sprague. As you've heard, I'm the Housing and Human Services Program Manager for Douglas County. Um, I'm going to be pretty brief in closing out the affordable housing portion of this plan. I do want to state that while a large focus of this is supporting our um, unhoused neighbors, uh, this plan is for everybody. Uh, affordable housing is a portion of the plan that specifically focuses on the benefits to our entire community. Um, and I just wanted to also highlight that as well for you. Um, I will say that these uh, affordable housing goals that you see in front of you can be broken down into four groups. Uh, so policy, new development, oh, let me get my notes out here, um, community engagement, and funding. And those are sort of the work groups that the affordable housing group has broken down into. And I'm just going to read these goals off for you. Um, this, I will say that this is a high-level overview, and I would encourage commissioners to ask questions towards the end. Um, there's a wealth of people in this space have, that have um, done this work and can answer your questions. 
So develop a long-term affordable housing plan. What does this plan look like beyond five years? Provide grant subsidies for new development or rehabilitation of desired unit types. Acquire parcels and units for future affordable housing development. Provide recommendations for city code updates that allow for affordable housing development. Establish a tenant right to counsel or tenant legal representation in Douglas County, uh, a program. Enforce the city's protection against source of income discrimination. Establish the city of Lawrence vacant and dilapidated structure registry. Establish an incentive program for affordable housing development. Establish funding resources to support affordable housing development and rehabilitation. Provide ongoing community engagement on affordable housing and develop programs that increase racial equity and affordable housing access and land ownership. Um, some of the groups involved uh, include the Affordable Housing Advisory Board at the City of Lawrence, along with the group that meets monthly in the Affordable Housing Group to kind of report out on these goals. At this time, I'm going to hand it off to the Supportive Housing Group, which I think is Bob Triansky <coughs> over here. And Jill. We're also coordinated right now. Oh, right. <laughs> Good afternoon, Commissioners. My name is Bob Triansky. I'm the Director of Behavioral Health Projects for Douglas County, and Jill and I have collaborated and, and cooperated and co-convened the Supportive Housing Work Group. Um, so we've talked about foundation in terms of equity and inclusion. We talked about the first floor, affordable housing. Let's talk about the second floor and the two wings of that floor. So the supportive housing space is an area where we have been working for several years and I think have some wins to talk about. Um, so I'll make some reference to those things in, a, in an effort to help understand the two types of housing we're talking about when we're talking about making progress in the supportive housing in the supportive housing space. There we go. So um, one thing we need to talk about is the definition of chronically homeless individuals, because this is one of the areas that the supportive housing piece of this plan is designed to address. So we know from the uh, Corporation for Supportive Housing Needs Assessment that their estimate is that we need 384 units of supportive housing, most of that permanent supportive housing. Um, however, there is a need to increase our capacity, particularly as we move toward accomplishing the goals in this plan, uh, to significantly increase our temporary capacity for transitional housing, because there are these there are these two wings. <laughs> and right now, if you look at what we've brought online over the last couple of years, a project such as the cottages on the treatment and recovery campus, 10 units, permanent supportive housing for people with serious mental illness or co-occurring mental illness and addiction issues, they could live in those units for the rest of their life. They could also take uh, a Section 8 voucher out of those units and continue to move out in, into the community. Overall, there's a need for 384 units such as that in the, in the plan as assessed. However, we're also trying to reach that functional zero for people who are chronically homeless. And chronically homeless means that they've experienced, a person who has experienced three or more incidents, uh, periods of homelessness over the course of a three year period, or somebody who has been homeless for 12 or more months over a 12 month period. And what the Corporation for Supportive Housing has, and the needs assessment and the work that we've done together has identified is kind of a breakdown of 
how many units in each of these areas we need to target. So I'm going to click. Oh, it just worked by itself. Um, so the goals for supportive housing are by 2027 to increase the number of permanent supportive housing units dedicated to the following groups. 30 units for chronically homeless individuals. Two units for chronically homeless families. 50 units for homeless individuals age 55 or, or, or older. 20 units for justice-involved individuals, 10 units for child welfare-involved families, and eight units for homeless individuals aged 17 to 23. We have made progress in many of these spaces. If you look at a project such as Kairos House and Meraki House with artists helping the homeless, there's an example of how we've addressed this need for about 16 individuals through those two projects, justice-involved individuals. There's this much more need on top of what we have done so far. Um, if you look at a project on the treatment and recovery campus such as Transitions, that is a program, transitional housing, that allows somebody to live for, um, you know, ideally it would be three to six months. But with the lack of permanent supportive housing, with the lack of a place to transition to, what we face currently is folks living in a facility like Transitions, a congregate home and setting like Transitions for nine to 12, maybe even 18 months. So it's this, I think this progression um, of our aspirational goals and between how we get to those those goals as outlined here, there's a need for an additional 15 units of transitional housing to, to address uh, the needs of individuals, homeless individuals with substance use disorders or mental illness by 15 units. There's five tactics or strategies to use to achieve these goals in the supportive housing space. The first is develop a five-year supportive housing capital improvement plan, establish a community of supportive housing case management program, establish sustainable funding sources, um, diversify funding sources, identify sustainable funding braids, design and develop emergency non-congregate shelter services, and design a curriculum to build community buy-in and trust for supportive housing so that we as a community have shared understanding about what each of these terms means. So we understand and we're saying the same thing when we're talking about functional zero. We understand that we're, what we're talking about when we're talking about addressing the needs of chronically homeless individuals versus people that are temporarily experiencing homelessness. And um, so that is the work in the supportive housing space. It's a space where we intersect, right? So affordable housing and housing in the community health plan intersects with supportive housing in the behavioral health space. And um, thank you for your time. I will turn it over to the systems. Please welcome Kristen. Hi, I'm Kristen Egan. I'm the Douglas County Regional Coordinator at the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition, working on um, a Douglas County grant. So, and I inherited the systems plan about halfway through and then worked together with LCS, Burt Nash, city and county um, to develop this. So let me see if I can work the screen. Okay. So chronic homelessness, ending chronic homelessness and otherwise homelessness will require a coordinated system of resources in which many organizations work together. These systems can help us gather an accurate picture of where things stand so we can move forward. Our goals are to achieve quality data through the Built for Zero framework through community solutions by July 2024. 
By April 2024, launch a dashboard for real-time homelessness and housing data that's specific to Douglas County and increase participation in HMIS and coordinated entry by 20%. And I'll talk a little bit about how those all go together here. Um, a lot of, the good thing about systems is that a lot of that stuff is already in place. We just need to improve participation. Um, so we're going to collaborate, we continue to collaborate and try to improve participation in COC meetings, um, CES, coordinated entry, what you might remember as the by name list each week, um, which we go through. Um, we are going to build a Built for Zero specific report and dashboard. So as you guys may know, Douglas and Lawrence have been a Built for Zero community for some time. Built for Zero is largely based on data, and that data that Built for Zero requires is kind of hard to get through through HMIS system. So um, HMIS is housed by BitFocus. They are working to build us a dashboard specifically for um, the Built for Zero reporting. So that can, we will be able to see by the end, probably beginning of February, end of February, sometime in February, um, where we are with Built for Zero. So it could be terrible news, it could be good news, but at least we'll be able to start and then we'll be able to see where we're going. <laughs> um, we need to identify agencies who serve the unhoused population who are not able to use HMIS and, and create data integration. So previously, um, HMIS was only open to HUD-funded programs, which, as you know, does not include all of the programs that serve the homeless. Um, so my agency has opened that up a little bit. We need to continue to open things up and get more of our resources in HMIS so we can collaborate together. And as soon as that, that can be done pretty quickly where we're all collaborating and using HMIS to collaborate, which will be able to quickly improve some client outcomes, but the real work is keeping the, the resources and the stakeholders focused on using HMIS so that we can get data that shows us who's out there, who we need to serve, what programs are working, what programs are not working, and direct our funding to places that, to resources that are actually solving the problem and not just putting a Band-Aid on it. Um, we're going to develop key performance indicators to use for public education. Again, that just goes back to data. If we're all using it, the HMIS system, we're gonna have much more clear, accurate data on who our population is. And we can use that data for lots of things, including public education. Um, conduct a housing study through KHRC. I'm not totally sure where we are on that. There was a study done previously, but it didn't address extremely low income folks, so it was more like people that could afford rentals or to buy. So we're trying to, I think, discuss what more we need to know there. Um, and then increase Lawrence and Douglas County representation at the Continuum of Care, HMIS Steering Committee. Um, so basically just get some of our folks that are invested in our community to go to the COC, the Continuum of Care, which is what my agency um, manages, those 101 counties. We are only one county but we're also one region, one of nine regions. So we're one of 101 counties, but we're one of nine regions. But we do need to increase participation in those meetings and committees just so that our perspective is better represented in those. And um, yeah, it's actually pretty simple because all of this stuff is kind of in place. We just need to start using it and have buy-in and um, start getting data so we can actually 
use programs that work. Mm -hmm. So that is it for me, and I will hand it off to Emergency Shelter. <clears throat> I'm going to cover Emergency Shelter and Services. I have some subject matter experts that are here in the room, but I think a lot of you know that um, they've been working really hard this past week or two. So um, they're here for questions when we get there, but um, I want to make sure I acknowledge that there's some, some more trusted uh, representatives in this group. Um, so for emergency shelter and services, um, we acknowledge that it's it's a short it's a temporary short-term housing for people experiencing homelessness. In Douglas County, there are currently an insufficient number of emergency shelter beds for people experiencing homelessness. It's not a surprise to anybody in this room. So here are our goals. By 2024, we're going to enhance the regional coordinated entry system of agencies and access points to provide triage, diversion, and coordination to the to these, those at risk of or currently experiencing homelessness. By 2026, establish a street outreach, a multidisciplinary, we left that part out of here, I think that's an important part, a multidisciplinary street outreach team to serve the unsheltered homeless individuals and families in this community. By 2027, reduce the Douglas County point in time count for unsheltered individuals by 50%. By 2027, provide women and families with immediate access to low barrier emergency shelter services. And by 27 establish a homeless community outreach and day center facility. I want to um, go back up to that point in time count. I know that some information was has been released for our community um, recently for 2023 that um, showed that there's quite an increase in the point in time count. And I think we still have a lot of work to dive into the details of how that point in time count was conducted and hope that this year's point in time count is perhaps a more accurate reflection of who's out there and how many are out there um, based on the organizational efforts that have been led by the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition and have, I think, um, a great um, organizational structure to bring all the necessary stakeholders into having the most effective point in time count in a single day um, to get the best reflection of how many folks are experiencing homelessness. Of course, that's going to be combined with all the other data sources that we have available to us, including um, some of the information of how many folks that have been seen in some of the winter emergency shelters in these recent days. So I think there's just there's a wealth of opportunities to get a back a better a more accurate picture um, of how many folks um, are currently unsheltered in our community to better understand the need. So we're going to reach our emergency shelter and services goal through the following strategies. We're going to define programmatic and operational expectations for community organizations to provide emergency shelter services. We're going to develop a policy framework to build trust and accountability with our community. I want to pause there and give a couple examples of that. What that looks like based on what we've talked about in our work group is doing things like developing a code of conduct, a community code of conduct that will be developed in partnership with all members of this community, those who are experiencing homelessness, those who are not experiencing homelessness and how we're going to share, be in community with one another. That's a model that's been used in other communities. Um, we have organizations in this community, like the library, that utilize a code of conduct that we're going to build on and try to extend that to um, common spaces in this community. We're going to define and further develop the Pallet Shelter Village program that's being um, led in partnership with the City of Lawrence with the Lawrence Community Shelter. 
We're going to expand street outreach services. Um, I hope that between Misty and I and some of our partners with um, with Burt Nash that um, and others, we're going to come back to you all here in the next month or two and talk about what is that model for um, a new model for street outreach look like in this community with that multidisciplinary um, um, approach. Some really exciting things are happening. When I say multidisciplinary, one example of that is of course, including Burt Nash in that work. They're key to that work. But also thinking about how can we integrate street medical outreach. We've had some really exciting um, developments and collaborative op collaborations that have been happened with Heartland Community Health Center and um, the um, Lawrence Douglas County Health Authority Health Department and several other agencies that have all gotten together to better understand how can we bring health services to our unhoused community members? How do we build trust with them? And we're experimenting and learning and hope that we can um, implement some um, experimental models starting in February that I um, hope we can share more with you about. But that's just an example of when we think when we talk about multidisciplinary street outreach and revamping what street outreach looks like in this community to have more impact on folks, that's what it can look like. Um, and then we're going to establish a community severe weather and disaster response and recovery emergency shelter plan for houseless individuals. Never has that been more important than where we are today. And I think that um, what we've already been operationalizing, um, acting on this um, this objective here. Our emergency management department has convened um, a series of meetings over the last four to five months um, around first developing um, an emergency um, an emergency operations plan for the Pallet Shelter Village, just because we knew we wanted to get that up and going. But now it's we have some really good examples of what we can do in a weather emergency like. Um, dangerously cold weather like we're experiencing right now. We know what we can do and we know how we can document that in a plan so that the next time this happens, we're, we're, we're better prepared. Okay, so that's a, um, a dive into each of the focus areas. Um, you asked for cost estimates and this is our best shot at giving you some cost estimates. Um, these are big scary numbers. Um, I think what you heard from certainly affordable housing and supportive housing, um, where you see most of, where you see a significant amount of these cost estimates um, focused, is we have strategies that are intentionally designed to develop a sustainable funding plan for those. So we don't have all the answers, but we're committed to developing what we think is a sustainable plan. Um, that's going to be a mix of making sure that we're leveraging public and private resources, federal state grants. Um, I'm really excited to share that um, Douglas County with um, a handful of partners um, have um, been invited to participate in the final round of the state's home ARP grant application. A majority of that's all focused on um, getting um, up to, I think, 30 additional units of supportive housing um, capital in this community with some operating funds to support that. How do we continue to le leverage opportunities like that um, combined with what's feasible within our, our local resources and with private partners, hopefully, as well? Emergency shelter, a lot of the costs that are, are, are reflected there, um, those are committed today um, with a lot of um, commitment and leadership from the city of Lawrence um, and the combined um, um, supports from um, our other partners, um, including the county. 
So I'm going to let Leah Roslin come up and talk about what our next steps are going to look like. Um, we'll hand it off. Hi again. So for next steps, we will continue to operationalize the strategies outlined in the action steps of the full plan that has been included in your packet. In addition, we will strengthen our collective community impact by aligning the A Place for Everyone plan goals and strategies with that of the safe and affordable housing plank of the community health plan. In this way, we will have one master plan for affordable housing and homeless prevention in our community. And we will gain additional resources and partner support in this work. Um, myself, Gabby Sprague with the county, and Galel Obian with the Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority will have leadership for convening and supporting the operationalization, progress reporting, and ensuring continued collaborative work for collective impact for both the safe and affordable housing plank for the community health plan, otherwise known as the CHIP, and the Place for Everyone plan. At this time, we're, uh, we are requesting the support of the governing body for this plan, and we commit to making ongoing progress updates for both bodies. Um, before we conclude our presentation, I'd like to introduce and turn over the mic to Jonathan Smith, the Executive Director of Lawrence Douglas County Health, to talk about the Community Health Plan. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioners, good to see you all. Thanks for having me. Um, well, Leah helped me out with, at first, I was going to talk about um, acronyms that we're going to be talking about. So you, you helped with one. I appreciate that. So to get it out the way, um, I'm going to talk about the community health assessment. You might hear me say CHA. I'm going to talk about the community health plan. You might hear me say CHIP. And you might hear me say LDCPH, which stands for Lawrence Douglas County Public Health. Um, so one of the main things I want to do today, and let me move progress the slides over here. Um, one of the main things I want to do today is do a lot of talking about intersecting. So we have, there's a strategic plan over here, we have this plan here, we have the community health plan, a lot of plans going around. So what I want to do is talk about how they intersect and how they come together to form a healthcare delivery system for Douglas County. Um, so when I say our community health plan, I truly mean that as an our, our as in everybody in this room, um, all the organizations that are represented, anybody who lives in Douglas County, it is your community health plan. And while Lawrence Douglas County Public Health facilitates that plan, um, it's not possible without support from the city of Lawrence, Douglas County, members of our steering committee, members of our um, staff, health equity advisory board, um, and our partnership with KU School of Public Health. KU Med School of Public Health. And so what you have here, I'm going to walk you through this. I'm going to do a little bit of narrating. I'm not going to read directly off of here, but you can kind of follow me through here. So what the community health assessment is, essentially it's a plan for health and well-being in Lawrence and Douglas County. Um, and the community health plan is a five-year process that we're just beginning now, um, so 2024 to 2029, is a five-year process that we're going to facilitate and identify what are the um, barriers and social determinants of health, some of these obstacles that we're talking about here today, identifying them and how we're going to address them. Um, so again, we're just starting that right now, and so we've you've probably heard the term conveners. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well. And 
So to look at it like this, the community health assessment feeds into what the community health plan is. And so if you're interested and have the time, we have on our website is well over 100 pages that goes into detail about how we complete the community health assessment. Uh, but a way to summarize that, I like to use the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's definition of um, health equity. So I'm going to read that really quick. And health equity means that everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. This requires removing obstacles to health such as poverty, discrimination, their consequences including powerlessness and lack of access to good jobs with fair pay, quality education, housing, safe environments, and health care. So when you think about the community health assessment, what that is is we're asking ourselves what are the obstacles that we mentioned in the health equity definition there that exist here in Douglas County. Um, another thing I like to reference when we talk about the community health assessment and the community health plan is in public health there's a graphic and, and there's a picture that we like to use that shows a person and it shows how health care is delivered to that person and believe it or not health care itself only accounts for 10% of how health care is delivered so going to the doctor's office getting screenings and all of that the other 10% comes from the physical environment. So what environment are you being born into? Um, there's a phrase that goes sometimes, unfortunately, your health care is determined by your zip code. Um, the other 40% of how uh, health factors contribute to a person is social economic factors. The other 40% is health behaviors. So you may go to the doctor and they say, hey, you need to, your BMI is out of control here. You need to diet and exercise. So we can't assume that that person knows how to diet or that person knows how to exercise. So when we talk about health behaviors, you know, you could say that um, one of the things that I think about and it's really frustrating is I try to eat healthy, but it's really expensive. Um, so I'm privileged enough to have a job to afford some of that healthy food and things like that, but unfortunately there's others who are neighbors who are not. Um, so that's a good way to um, summarize how we come up with the community health assessment is think of that definition of health equity and ask ourselves what are the obstacles that we're facing. So earlier I told you I was going to talk about how these plans intersect. So I'll bring up another plan that, and how this intersects. And I think it goes well along with this. So we, we talk about strong and welcoming neighborhoods from the city strategic plan. So I'll read that real quick. All people in Lawrence live in safe. The goal for that is all people in Lawrence to live in a safe and functional, aesthetically unique neighborhoods that provide opportunities to lead healthy lifestyles with access to safe and affordable housing, which is why we're here today talking about, um, and essential services that help them thrive. And so I want to point out where it talks about leading healthy lifestyles. Think about that definition of health equity that I just gave you and how that intersects. Um, one more intersection. I think this might be the last intersection. There's a lot of them, but I just, we're crunched for time, so I'll give you one more. Another one is um, prosperity and economic security. City of Lawrence fosters an environment that provides all people and businesses the opportunity for economic security and intentionally acknowledges and removes and prevents barriers. We talked about obstacles and health equity, so that's related to that as well. Created by systematic and institutional injustice, um, our community succeeds because of collective prosperity and a vibrant, sustainable local economy. Um, and I think we all agree Douglas County is very unique and I think we're very fortunate to have uh, government and organizations um, like you've heard today that really care about this or are obviously investing in, uh, investing in this. And so going through this process here um, talks about our community health improvement process. I uh, wanted to give a shout out to our health equity advisory board. Um, so our health equity advisory board, I like to use them at Lawrence Douglas County Public Health almost as a filter for pr pretty much everything that we do. So we're not going to implement a new program or 
or anything like that without passing it through our Health Equity Advisory Board. And that board is comprised of nine members of the community selected based on their lived experience and identify and identify and identifies as members of racial or ethnic groups historically marginalized. Their identities also intersect with other populations experiencing inequities. Um, so when we think about boards and serving on boards, a lot of us fortunately have the privilege to be able to do that as a part of our jobs. Um, and so when you're on a board, what do you do? You, you have governing responsibility and you're advising an organization and helping steer that direction. And so if we want to have a health equity advisory board, which we do, we actually compensate the members of the health equity advisory board because we realize that they may have jobs that might not allow them to show up to a board meeting as a part of their job. Um, so the next thing I'll tell you all in going to, oops, went too far there. So I mentioned our community health plan. So initially in our community health assessment that was um, completed last year, there were 14 issues related to Douglas County um, that were identified. And we've narrowed that down to six different issues. And when I say we, um, it wasn't Lawrence Douglas County Public Health, because remember, this is our plan. We're just facilitating it. We're we may be driving the vehicle. We've got other people in there telling us, hey, you need to turn right here. You need to turn left there. We don't have the answers to everything. And it's not possible without the community support that we get. So these six different community health improvement plan priorities. Um, that selection process was made based off of community priority, scope, scale, severity, um, indicators suggesting inequities. And that came from listening sessions that we did with the community. That came from some of our conveners that we've selected, members of our steering committee, which some of you participate in that in this room. Um, and so I'm gonna briefly go over these issues. And what I wanna do is tell you a little bit of the why as to why this is showing up. Obviously, safe and affordable housing is one of them, and I'll, I'll touch on that one. But we, I do wanna give a shout out to our conveners. So what our conveners are, again, like Lawrence Douglas County Public Health, we're facilitating this, but we need help from other organizations to get this done. So looking at access to health services, thank you to LMH Health and Heartland Community Health Center for being our conveners with that. The conveners are establishing, okay, we've identified this as an issue, what are measurable objectives that we can use to develop a plan to tackle those issues and over these five years make progress on them? Um, so when you talk about access to health services, why is that an issue? One of the many reasons, again, I'm going to give you one reason, but again, there's over 100 pages that you can read um, on our website, ldchealth.org. Um, so access to health services, why is that an issue? Black residents in Douglas County have higher rates of hospitalizations for congestive heart failure, asthma, diabetes, stroke, and heart disease. Moving on to birth outcomes with our convener being um, LMH Health. So birth outcomes, why is that an issue here in Douglas County? Infant mortality right here in Douglas County is higher than our peer county. So 6.1 compared to Johnson County, which is at four, and Riley County, which is at 5.5. Moving around the wheel here, we're talking about food security. Why is that an issue in Douglas County? 11.5% of Douglas County identifies as food insecure. Um, Anti-poverty, one in 10 children in Douglas County live in poverty, including 45.5% of Native American kids. Um, behavioral health, you can see our conveners there. Um, why is that an issue here in Douglas County? One in four Douglas County residents have been diagnosed with depression. 
Um, and then also safe and affordable housing. We just had a pretty long presentation about that, but I'll give you one other um, statistic on there. So 48.8% of renters are cost burdened, meaning that 30% uh, of their income is being used on rent and utilities. So that's what the definition of cost burdened is. Um, so what our next step is for the community health plan is these conveners that you see on here, right now they're in the process of developing those measurable outcomes that we talked about and developing a plan for how we tackle those. Um, and the next step for us, one of the things that we're going to be doing different with this community health plan is at the end of each year, so obviously you can see it's 2024 to 2029, at the end of each year we're going to provide and make available to everyone to see um, what the status is of the, of the progress that we're making towards the goals that these conveners are making. So look forward to seeing that. This year will be a lot of us um, establishing what those goals are. So. I don't know if we'll see a lot of progress on that this year, but next year, our goal is to see, okay, are we making progress? And doing that every year gives us the ability to say, do we need to change course? Do we need to um, go a different route? And so, yeah, I was just here to talk a lot about how these plans intersect, and I appreciate being invited to this, to this table here, and I'll give it back to Jill. So that's all I had. Hope to see you all soon. Thanks, Jonathan. And just to be clear, um, Jonathan talked about the work that's underway currently to, um, to establish the outcomes and develop the plan. Safe and affordable housing is done. Like, that's what we presented today, and it's just going to transition um, into um, the operational phase. And I know that um, Gabby and Galal and Leah are already thinking about what the next steps look like and how do we, what's worked, what's going to keep working, what groups are going to keep working, and how do we integrate all this into the process that the community health plan has teed up for us. So we have some more detailed information. Um, the including um, the full version of this plan. Um, we have some more data um, on our website that is a place for everyone. Um, I've pulled that up here. I gotta stop share. I gotta hold on new share. So we'd really like to consider this our hub for this plan. Um, so you folks should be able to come to this plant this site and have a baseline understanding of where we're at today and where we're headed. We hope to keep this page updated. Um, we we want to have everything on here from um, an overview of the plan, um, our objectives that we've talked about today. You can see our priority populations that we focused on, some definitions that are here. Um, there's some great videos from our partners at um, Community Solutions, um, which is the Built for Zero initiative host. Um, some more information about how we are we can. You, we understand um, and define homelessness in this community. Um, there's links to those two needs assessments that we um, that are foundational to this work that are on here. Um, there's some information on here about um, the number of um, supportive housing units that we're estimating. Um, there's a lot of information here. Um, and at the very end right here, what we hope to also keep updated is just um, some resources. Um, this, again, we, we do want this to be a hub um, for this work, but um, we do hope that this is just a jumping off point. We know that partners um, that are involved in this work, um, actually I had it right here. We have a lot of partners that have been involved in this work. And so um, if any anybody wants to explore what's possible, um, what's happening with any of our partner agencies, we have some nice jumping off points for all of those. Um, a nice little picture of our friends at Artists Helping the Homeless. Okay, um, at this point, 
we're ready to stand for questions. Um, get some feedback from you all. Thank you, Jill. And uh, you know, we're on a tight timetable, so I'll open it up for questions from all of the commission members here. <laughs> May I have a couple of questions? Um, I won't pick on whoever. I'll just see who can answer it. Um, going back to the slide for equity and inclusion, under some of the areas of populations we have identified, with one being transitional youth, specifically youth aging out of foster care. The city had a wonderful example of how to use ARPA funds for an, uh, an organization that was wanting to build um, housing. Um, where the hiccup was and probably where we struggled to have some good dialogue and processing through was that the idea that while the business entity was in Douglas County, a portion of the lot and, and where most of the housing was was in a different county. And we know that dealing with aging out of foster care, children, trans these youth transition. So what you may have in Leavenworth is not gonna stay in Leavenworth, they may float. So how do we address, or what have you heard from maybe some of the state level groups about addressing affordable housing as it relates to transitioning youth from foster care? And maybe instead of looking at this from a county um, collaboration, city county collaboration, more of a regional collaboration. Well, I'd, I'd certainly open up to anybody else in this room, um, especially our equity inclusion leaders. Um, but I can say, I, I believe that there's um, a, an opportunity that's currently open right now. Um, um, it's a state grant or a federal grant uh, for youth transitioning out of the out of the foster care system or youth transitional care that the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition, which is our COC collaborative applicant, is pursuing um, submitting a, a grant application for. Um, I know that they've tried to do a fair amount of convenings on trying to assess what, what the need is and how the COC can respond to it. Um, but beyond that, I, I think that's an area that we, we need to get more information on and how we can better um, respond to that population. Yeah, I, I would love us to, because since we're not our own COC and we're part of the bigger one, you know, I, I, I was going to ask that question tonight, but I won't, but I won't belabor the point because I feel like every time I hear it, I don't get the answer I want to hear. I get the answer that everybody wants to tell me. I do believe we need to be our own COC. I'm not going to no disrespect Kristen, but it is what it is. I'm going to hold on to that. Um, but I, I, I say that and I think that's good to have because there's going to come a point where, again, if we have partners that want to come to us and work with us as a county, because maybe the county that they're in does not see the value in doing that work with them, at some point we need to sit down and say, can we do this? So um, I just wanted to put that in. I, I promise not to put my comments in with my questions. because I know we're going to have time for that. Um, that's not a question, a lot of comment. Um, for the goals for affordable housing, um, I heard a little bit about how the numbers don't meet the 2018 housing report. Um, is there any way that we can get some data that identifies housing stress by industry? It was brought up in the presentation, but I remember when I was part of the advisory group with UCS and Johnson County, where they broke through with addressing affordable housing, is when they did an industry, they showed by industry for each municipality whether or not individuals were cost burden, rent burden, and mortgage burden based on the average salary um, for the particular industries that are represented in 
that particular county. So I, I didn't see it, but I would like for us to have something to that, to that effect. Um, on the goal for supportive housing, um, and this may be a question uh, for for um, whomever. Uh, how do we, I know we identified the different areas of permanent supportive housing. When we have someone that is, that is end of life, respite care, where would they fit in this? How would the, is it more of a more high level identification or is at some point, if they're in one of these, these categories and they then become in need of care, respite care, transitional care, end of life care, how do, where would that individual receive the bulk of their care? Commissioner Sellers, um, that's an area that I've I've spent a considerable amount of time on. I, I think at first blush, um, you know, our thought was that we would build that into that 55 plus category, but we've probably got more room to um, to grow there. The other thing I'd mention is I think that it is mentioned in the detailed version of the um, the emergency shelter the emergency services and shelter um, is one of the things, well, we had it in there at one point, but one of the things what we've, we've, we know will need to be a, could be a potential solution to addressing that unsheltered point in time count goal that we have in there is to have um, not just emergency shelter beds available, but medical respite shelter beds um, for folks that are being discharged from a medical facility. Um, a lot of folks get discharged from medical facilities from other communities here, um, and our partners aren't equipped to support them. And um, so we know that we need to have those um, available here locally. Um, I know that um, our partners at some agencies have done some really um, superhero work in trying to support folks in their end of life because it's just the right thing to do in putting them up in hotels. And that's, we need to have more sustainable strategies um, in the future. And those are things that we've talked about as part of this plan. Um, more of a question slash comment um, I'm you know we've been pushing back and forth about getting folks on board with HMIS and doing the by name I think I, I'm it, I'm still a little bit saddened to hear that we have folks not participating in it I guess I'd be curious to know why I'm not totally sure <laughs> um, I do track which agencies are do, to be in the HMI to be in coordinated entry on the by name list. Mm -hmm. You need to have an assessment done each year. It's a simple assessment. It used to be the VI spit ad. It's changed names and. Uh, some of the questions have changed to be more representative of the barriers that are facing unhoused folks. Um, so I do I do keep track of um, some agencies are required by HUD to use HMIS, others aren't. Um, right now the main contributors, I actually just did this before the meeting, um, are my agency, LCS, and Burt Nash, not in that order. I think it would be LCS has done the most. I'm talking about the current by name list, mm -hmm. which is about 270 people today. Um, 
I think LCS had done 105 of those. Uh, Burt Nash had done maybe 60. KSHC had done, don't quote me on these numbers, but KSHC had done 75. Um, within those organizations, there are certain people that are doing the assessments, and there are certain people who are not. I'm not their supervisor, so I can only every Tuesday at 2.30 beg them to do it. And other than that, I don't, I don't honestly know. But I just want to make sure her. That I share in your frustration. I just want to make sure I heard correctly that we you have did. individuals who are participating in our continuum of care that are not participating in the HMIS. Yes. Which is what we need in order to. Yes. Okay. I'm not going to. I'm not going to beat a dead horse. Mm -hmm. Commissioner Sellers, can I tag along with that conversation sure, a little bit? Um, is there a, a shared understanding that we, as the two um, governing bodies here, could tie funding to participation in HMIS? Oh, you're talking about behavior, like performance-based so, <laughs> funding. I believe we have. Because when I see you know a increased participation by 20 percent, I think it's not good enough. I think we have a tool that the community is asking us to use. We have access to that tool, uh, and I think that seems like a really important starting point in order to build all the other pieces that we have in front of us. Sounds very refreshing. I like performance-based budgeting. <laughs> this is Commissioner Reed. I'll just chime in real quick and say, um, uh, tying that to our funding agreements are definitely a key tool that I think we uh, both have um, and collectively between our governing bodies that can be impactful but I also just want to say um, we have to be cognizant that it has to come along with some support for those agencies too because I am a service provider um, and the the ever-growing list of um, demands and um, direct service providers uh, position descriptions is pretty constant and data is not top of mind for most service providers, myself included, um, and it's not that it doesn't have value, it's just not what your bread and butter is day in and day out. And so we need to think about the infrastructure for supporting agencies with uh, identifying why that is a difficulty um, for people to overcome and how we can backfill support for that. Do we build in systems assessment for some of our, you know, I, I know that's something that we used to do on the state level, especially work that I used to do in early care and education, was looking, you know, doing those systems assessments that as we continue to transition and bring, bring, bring on board additional pieces, doing those system checks to make sure that we're not loading too much into commissioner. Reason. Yes, I do, and thank you for bringing that up, of course, the teams are very busy, um, and capacity needs to be considered, of course. Um, it, when you give the assessment that gets you on the by name list, it gets your client the opportunity to be enrolled in housing programs. So while I understand that they could be at capacity, the workers are at capacity and very busy, it's a detriment to your client if you don't get them on the by name list. So I understand they're very busy, but I also, it, the, it's a housing assessment, and it's my opinion that that could be part of an intake to be case managed by a homeless outreach team or in-reach team. 
You're absolutely right. And then the next step <laughs> is entering that into a database. It's in, in into the, it, you do it directly under your computer, and it takes me about 10 to 15 minutes per person. I think that um, I mean, the point I really just wish to infuse into this mm -hmm. piece of the conversation, because it is, it's a necessary and frankly, like, um, a, a solution that's based in some some technical mm -hmm. um, fixes, I think, mm -hmm. that are easy enough for us to figure out. But we have to appreciate the sort of complexity and the burden that it creates in organizations that are struggling in a variety of ways, including increased demand and pressure. Sure. And, and so I think that we, in our roles as governing bodies and organizations who are funders and trying to be partners with folks, is to figure out wh where can we start to wedge in supports to those gaps yeah. um, that help make it a more seamless process. Just like, you know, we talk a lot of, at Douglas County about the use of my resource connection mm -hmm. and how that's a really important tool mm -hmm. for a lot of local agencies. It's utilized in different ways. Always telling the story of how that's mutually beneficial to both clients and the mm -hmm. community and the public, as well as practitioners um, and advocates and organizations. That's part of the trick sometimes is figuring out how to tell that whole story and give supports so that people understand the why of yes. doing it and that um, they have processes in place to make sure that we don't fall behind on it when we experience turnover, which is just mm -hmm. an inevitability of care and crisis and work. It is another system they have to use, right? Like the folks at Burton Ash are using their electronic, electronic medical record. It's like another what feels like just another thing to learn, and I understand that's time consuming. I think that there are probably workarounds to that. Like I think at LCS, they're planning to have somebody that's in charge of HMIS, so they can kind of take some of the burden off of their direct service providers, but I can't speak too much to that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely like a, an added thing we're asking, but it's also going to support not only their client, but their community and it's a housing assessment. And if you're a housing case manager, it seems really appropriate to me. I think it's a two-prong where one, yes, as governing bodies, we need to, we, our, our staff that has been placed in these areas should be able to identify the gaps and, and come back to us and say, these are, these are the gaps. This mm -hmm. is where we need to be able to elevate mm -hmm. our partners so that we can get, so that we can accomplish outcomes that have been created hopefully in mind from the idea of access use and success yes and i hope i'm hearing that and i hope that's how we're building our outcomes not just say that inclusivity is that well we included them because we put their name on the list it's actually how are individuals accessing those resources and better yet are they successful in utilizing those resources and if they're not then your outcome has failed and we need to look go back exactly and how do we that's do exactly that? what we need just more robust data so we can do that exact thing and commissioner sellers i did not understand your second question at the beginning when i stood up here about systems and checks every year oh um Okay, we'll ignore it. About it. Okay. <laughs> you know, we're fine. Um, are there any additional questions? So I want to leave time for comments at the end for everybody. So um, I, I do have, um, I'll try and be brief about my question, but I wonder if I could invite um, <clears throat> Gabby and Leah um, back up with you, Jill just to um, dig in a little bit further to some of the policy recommendations I think are in here and I want us to zero in on because those are tangible opportunities for us. So um, 
I wonder if we can get it, if there is such a thing as a brief update on tenant right to counsel and sort of some, um, even if it's just a timeline of when some concrete recommendations around what types of policies or procedures locally are possible to put into place. And then Leah, for you, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more, um, a little bit about um, source of income enforcement, um, but mostly I'd like you to say more about the, um, the vacant and dilapidated um, registry and just expand a little bit on sort of um, what it is that you're sort of interrogating about that and um, and why. So yeah, I'll speak again. My name is Gabby Sprague. I work for the county. Um, I'll speak a little bit to the tenant legal representation program. So Kansas Holistic Defenders currently has a lawyer doing eviction defense for tenants pro bono um, that was funded through a grant. It is an annual grant. Um, we are currently trying to um, I'm kind of currently trying to work with them to get data in order to be able to show the effic efficacy of such a program. Um, I would also say that following the tenant right to counsel sprint, um, which talks about a tenant legal representation program, ended last year and we're looking to develop um, further uh, a work group uh, geared towards developing this tenant legal representation program. Another part of it is finding the funding to even uh, do that sort of thing. But I think first, before we try to think about funding mechanisms, it's proving that it's actually in a, uh, an effective program uh, through collected data. Um, yeah, I'll hand it off to Leah. Thanks, Gabby. This is Leah Roslin. Um, in regards to the source of income enforcement, um, we um, are going to reconvene the original group that um, looked at the source of income non-discrimination ordinance, um, get with Dr. Muhammad, um, with the city and city legal and work on next steps. We have not reconvened that group. We've sort of been watching and waiting what happens with the original ordinance, to be honest. Um, in terms of the vacant and dilapidated structure ordinance, that was a policy solution um, proposed to the Lawrence City Commission about a year ago. Um, and their recommendation at that time was to start with a vacant and dilapidated structure registry. So essentially just getting an idea of how many vacant and dilapidated structures we currently have in Lawrence, and that work has begun. Um, Next steps we do see um, it, as proposing a formal ordinance um, so we can remediate the situations um, regarding vacant dilapidated structure. So this area um, has come, I, I would say that the, the problem that we're trying to remediate is um, one vacant housing units that are just left vacant for um, speculation or um, that, are, that are just sitting vacant, um, to put it plainly, either for profit <laughs> um, or because there's some kind of issues with um, sometimes, um, like code enforcement has talked about, there have been issues with the homeowners just um, like property rights between family. 
th there are all sorts of reasons why a property might sit vacant, but the problem is, is that while it's sitting vacant, we have people um, without houses that are dying in the cold. And um, dilapidated structures, again, we don't have a good sense right now of how many dilapidated structures, but structures that are unsafe for people to be living in, um, and those may or may not be vacant. Um, what other communities have done to put those structures into usable housing units is to first start with a registry and a requirement that the property owners need to need to register those like we do um, rental units at this time so that we can track. Um, and often that comes with a fee that would then support that work being done of monitoring that um, and um, potentially feed into an affordable housing fund. Um, I, I want to say that the goal is to help people with housing. Um, so if the homeowners, if the structure is dilapidated because the homeowner cannot afford maintenance of that structure, in no way are we looking at proposing an ordinance that would seek to take that um, property away from the homeowner. Um, the goal would be to connect that homeowner with resources to help them get their unit back into inhabitable good order that's healthy for that person. Um, again, the goal is to have housing to house people, not sit vacant for um, continued profit. Um, but in no way are we looking at seizing properties. Um, really, we're looking at a way to um, measure how many vacant dilapidated properties there are and um, create a pathway to feed that into more affordable housing units and development. Thank you. Um, sorry to jump in. I'm going to try to give everybody a chance. Uh, Commissioner Larson um, has her hand up. Yeah, I just have one question. First, thanks for bringing up the HMIS situation. That was concerning to hear that we don't have um, everybody wanting to participate. But I had a question about the code. One of the early discussions on affordable housing was making recommendations for the for updates to the city code. Um, is it safe to assume that that's all being addressed now that we're in the process of rewriting that? Is Are all those items being brought up for discussion on the committee? This is Leah Roslin. We do have um, two subgroups that are making recommendations to the Land Development Code Steering Committee, um, meeting with the consultants, and feel really positive at this time that updates will be made that are helpful for more housing and affordable housing development. Um, but I think we're on track, and in terms of what those look like, that's yet to be seen. <laughs> um. Commissioner Kelly, looked like you wanted to perk up a little bit. Just a quick question for Jill. You, you indicated that the point in time wasn't accurate. You wanted it to be more accurate, which assumes that you don't believe that it is accurate. And I think there's a narrative out there that we've seen a large jump in the number of homeless, and and a lot of this work is to sort of address that increase. It is. Do you want to elaborate more on that? Do we have experiences or evidence that we think that the point in time count is not accurate? I think it's, we're questioning the method. Okay. And what I think we, I'm going to have Misty talk about 
the methods that she's seasoned in from coming from um, her her time um, working in um, Shawnee County um, and their methods of doing that that we could learn from. But I also think that we've got a lot going for us in the leadership of the Kansas Statewide Homeless Coalition, as evidenced by Kristen. Douglas County supplements the COC infrastructure that so that we have extra support. So Kristen is leading, making sure that we have a plan, we have all the volunteers we need, we're bringing folks into the fold. Like I know Kristen met with the sheriff's office, so we can make sure we're integrating everybody that's going to be out in the field at all levels um, to make sure we have the most accurate count and we do it in a way that looks similar to how other communities do it and I'll let Misty talk about that. Thank you Jill. Um, so Kristen has been kind enough to let me insert myself in her point in time count that she's overseeing. Um, I just had questions about how it's been done previously and I compared it to um, the things that I've been a part of over the whole state um, and my time at KDADS, I was fortunate enough to, to take uh, part of point in time count in Wichita, Topeka, Salina. So um, what I found here is that the point in time count was something that was done over several days. So um, if you think about the population and what they're um, doing day to day, it's not really staying in the same spot. They're going places looking for warmth and food. And so um, to me, it made sense to make sure that we had a system to really capture a point in time. So um, we have built a huge <laughs> volunteer group. Um, we have uh, sheriffs, police, um, we have uh, a couple individuals that have heat-seeking drones. Um, we're covering the whole county um, in I eight teams, nine teams? Nine, nine teams of four. Um, and we're really going to um, just hammer it out. Um, I'd let Rick Renfro, a local business owner, has donated $3,000 towards our account um, to be able to give $10 to every person that participates in the account. Um, so that's gonna be pretty meaningful too. Um, makes, you know, hopefully makes people want to um, participate and, and have a little bit of reward in giving up some information, even though it's, um, anonymous information, I think it, it can still be, um, there's some tough questions, so hopefully that will help in that. Yeah, just as soon as the weather Misty stops. has been a huge help to me. I've never done the point in time count before. I haven't had this job for a year yet. Um, I do wanna say, the, the point in time count this year is on January 25th, which is a week from tomorrow, so it's on Thursday, for where folks slept on the 25th. Um, we're going to start very early and try to get folks at camps um, before they go about their day. What I, what I would like the public to better understand is that each community is, commu is, is in charge of their own pit count. So if a community doesn't want to have a homeless problem, they're not gonna count that many people. So it's really hard to compare these numbers from community to community. It's also really hard to compare these numbers from year to year because there's variance in how the count is taking place. So if there's some kind of, you know, we're talking in the community where the, the number has doubled. Well, sure, maybe it doubled, but also maybe we counted differently. So while the pit count is important and helpful, it is not a perfect count. So it's very hard to use these numbers to compare things. I just want to throw that out there. So if the number goes up this year, yes, people have more people are homeless in our community, but also it might be more accurate. 
Yes, Commissioner Reed to just chime in. That's why the by name list and having a really active localized yes. dashboard that's <laughs> updated in real time matters. Yeah. yeah, the by name list should be more accurate than the pit count. It should. <laughs> okay. Um, additional questions? I just, um, yeah. to, to this point, in the point in time count, um, I, I think understand the the number isn't really important but it's the scale of magnitude of the problem I think um, I think that's what, what I'm really looking for and uh, we all know that every you know the data is only as good as the method which mm -hmm. you accumulated it and I agree that I'm sure we didn't maybe do as good of a job in counting for various reasons or maybe our methodology was poor sure. but the bottom line is I think we need to get that number so we can then understand what the dollars are going to mean which you presented in you know previously um, in the total cost of not only the housing needed for those people but then the services to, to incrementally get them into some sort of supporting or long-term housing so hopefully these numbers will help us there but yes it's also important for us to know so we know how much money is really necessary to do what we're talking about at least short term yes um. Just for reference, in 2023, in January of 2023, the by name list was 100 people, and the pit count was 351. So now the by name list, it, I think it maxed out around 305 this year. So at, at the very least, our pit numbers and our by name list are getting closer. <laughs> That's as it relates to those who are are, we're getting that point in time count from shelters and partners. Commissioner and Sellers, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, I just want to make sure that I'm giving available time to all commissioners to ask questions. Um, so I, I appreciate the question, but um, does anybody else have any? Okay, continue. The point in time count doesn't account for our school district and our McKinney-Vento definition of in that particular type of homelessness is what I was alluding to ask. So it, it, so just as a, another mm -hmm. nugget of understanding for our community, the point in time count speaks to one aspect of, of houselessness, but we still have other aspects of houselessness that we're not able to account for, which is gonna be, that we need to be able to address in the projects and, 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 and work that we do, is what I wanted to say. And I would say, yeah, we've we've been working hard on our, our, our goals around establishing a family shelter, figuring out what was the right number. Um, you know, we, we went with 65. We want to have 65 beds, um, but figuring out what is that right number? Right number. We've got to um, we've got to make sure we're in close collaboration with the with the McKinney-Vento representatives with the different school districts. Um, the needs assessment um, that KU and um, CSH did for us did get access to that data. So that that's good news. Um, but we also know that um, some of our lead partners that work with our families in the community and work and closely partner with the school district, like Family Promise is the top one that comes to mind, that there is strong integration there, but we, we need more accurate data just to fulfill our obligations on that family shelter goal. Perfect, thank you. Mr. Mayor. 
Yeah. Um, we start in our own meeting in about 25 yep. minutes, yep. so I'll, we'll wrap up here pretty soon. I just want to say I'm very excited to see the dashboard when that is available. I want to see what is the scope of the need, what is included in the plan, and what have we done so far? Because I think we need to not lose track of the fact that we have made pro progress and not just have this you know, forever goal in front of us, but to also be able to celebrate some wins. Um, that also will lead into how do we manage our braided funding, making sure that that, um, that we're harnessing dollars that come outside of our community for this work too. Um, I think we can show other communities how this can be done. We just can't pay for all of it in, out of our own pocket. Um, and the, the last piece that I th thought I might see uh, in conversation with this plan was the Housing uh, Stabilization Collaborative. Uh, that seems to be that upstream work of how do we keep people housed in the first place. I'm really proud of that work. I'd like to have a conversation, I don't know if we even have time for that now, to, to say how does that uh, feed into this and then how do we um, really use this plan plus the Housing Stabilization Collaborative and give some kind of laser-focused direction to AHAB, the Affordable Housing Advisory Board, on, on where our community dollars should be going. Well, I know you, we're always happy to talk about the Housing Stabilization Collaborative. Um, Gabby's your subject matter expert on that, and we consider that is one of the best things that we're doing to prevent homelessness in this community. Um, and she's done a tremendous job working with the collaborative partners to um, ease this community off the hangover, which was CARA. Um, and it's been a really, it's been a, it was a tough hangover. Um, but we're evening out, and I know that um, we, the county wants to have some conversations just with the city about how we can share that burden um, to administer, continue to administer that program um, and um, provide some information about um, where a lot of those funds are going um, and the where the utilities are going and the geographic dis dis um, distribution of that and how we can be more effective with that. But Gabby's your subject matter expert. I know she gives some great statistical quarterly updates to our commission, but we can always do a deeper dive on that sometime. I would love to see it included in the dashboard so that we have an understanding of that upstream work also, if that's a shared value for the two commissions. Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, Commissioner, uh, Commissioner Chair <coughs> Willie stole my thunder a little bit. I was wondering what would be uh, greater detail on the money? Um, so um, uh, downstream, I know that'll be a possibility and that'll be a little bit more. Um, but uh, I know you also answered a couple of my questions there. So, and this is just comment, not necessarily questions like who was, who's responsible for what, 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 when does it need to be paid? Um, will it be as much as we think it is or is there room for you know adjustment on that end? And where does it come from? So, um, and then overall just making sure that uh, we are engaging everyone because uh, the dollar figure that was put out there is a big ask and to have that kind of buy-in we need buy-in from everyone or as many people as possible so we're committed to providing um, at a minimum annual updates we can figure out I think how we update you all as part of our budget processes because invariably these projects that intersect with the um, you all are going to be making funding decisions as part of your, your annual budgets that if I were in your shoes, I'd be saying, how does this align with this plan? So um, at a minimum, we can commit to updating you on an annual basis outside of the budget process. But I think um, I anticipate being able to refer, refer to this and back up decisions in our budget process that way. Cool. Well, 
Yeah. It definitely needs to hit a sweet spot between our budget season and our policy season because what I see in this is that there's a lot of policy that's going to come out of this. So I would hope that we would get that information as well as we're doing land development code and we get those annual updates and as well as for the city we get those outcome updates and I know that we'll get that there. So hearing the policy updates, if there's things, if there's things specifically we need to be going to the legislature for, to our congressional delegation on, everything even the things that we're currently preempted from we need to know so that we can put this in front of their faces this bit this bill which i think is pretty accurate speaks to just the building part of it it doesn't speak to the system care of it so we also need to look at what is the what is the care coordination of this project going to look like how many more bodies capacity wise do we need in behavioral health do we need to be making a pitch for uh, a long-term facility you know for a, a mental health facility we're seeing it in Cedric county we're seeing it in johnson county do we need to look at a regional approach to address that? These are some of the bigger policy pieces that are coming out, that are outside of the scope of monies that should be coming from the city and the county. That these are asked that we should be making on the state and um, on the state and federal level. So those are things I would want to see. As well as if whoever's working on reparations, come see me after the meeting. I have a, a I have some research for you where you need to go for that. Yeah, I'm just this Commissioner Reed, and I could say a lot. Um, there's a lot to say, but we have many more meetings about this. You know, it, um, it's easy to focus on a number that, as Jill described earlier, feels big and scary, and that's what people react to. Um, but that number is uh, uh, going to have to come from a variety of resources. And if there are things, two things that I think that um, we are good at, both in Douglas County and City of Lawrence, along with our key community partners, it is. Uh, we've really strengthened our collaboration game in talking to each other and figuring out how to maximize resources um, and not be redundant in ways that are unproductive. And also, this is a, 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 we're also really good at pulling down state and federal funding. You know, I think that that's a strength that we have in this community and we just have to keep flexing that muscle and figure out how to leverage more and more because that helps increase our capacity for local funding too. This is a big, scary problem, and it's a big, scary problem for our community, but it's a big, scary problem for the whole nation. Um, and so there's a lot of factors that are out of our control um, that we are trying to account for, but it is, it is going to require big investments, um, and it's going to continue on with some unknowns in front of us, but we just have to keep walking the path that I think this community knows is right and necessary because the impact at the end of the day, and by the end of the day I mean generationally, um, is that there are structures and systems in place that are more equitable and that are functioning in a healthy way and that are sustainable because we have made upfront investments that become sustainable because it's reflective of our values. So it's a big scary number that um, is easy to put in a headline and easy for people to react to, but it's a big scary problem that we have a lot of complicated responsibility for. And finding the balance for how we put funding into this, these issues and also not harm affordability overall for the rest of the community. There's a lot of tricks to be had yet. Mayor, I, just one quick comment. I want to thank Jonathan from Lawrence Douglas County Public Health for being here mm -hmm. because I think there is something that, that we 
maybe need to expand a little bit more on, and that's wage, right? Is that many of these challenges that we're talking about are because our wages are so low and they haven't kept up with the cost of housing, and we have an anti-poverty plank of the plan, and I'd like to think about how some other community groups, some of our larger employers could be involved. We made a lot of progress on wage recently, but we have a long way to go. How can we, the groups that are conveners on anti-poverty or human services, Douglas County and the United Way, who's missing from that conversation? And if we're really gonna address these challenges across our community, it needs to be a full community's discussion, not just our human service providers and government. Now, only add as a, I guess, a, the positive spin in that. I remember shortly after we formed AHAB, we set up a plan and we set up a goal and we said, let's see if we can get this many housing units and this many rental units. And let's do this in the next five years. And with the help of a lot of partners and private money and other partners, we hit all those goals in about two years. And we said, let's let's keep going. Um, and now that might be that we set our goal too low. Um, but but my point is is that when you work together, when you have the plans, you have some dedication. I mean, I, I want a plan that stretches us. You know, I don't want a plan that says that we're going to do this tomorrow and then we'll be done and we'll all go home because we know that's not the truth. And so, yeah, the numbers are scary. The work is hard. But I, I mean, I appreciate so much everyone here tonight today who's presented. Everyone here who've worked on this and I mean I, I, the, the countless meetings that you guys have that then you come to us every six months and say hey this is what we're doing you know and we're like yay but um, you guys are working hard and you're in the trenches and you are um, doing the hard work and there's a lot of work to, to be done but I, I want to thank all of you for doing it all right I think we're out of okay. comments <laughs> all right uh Sherry, I need a motion to adjourn. <laughs> okay. We're adjourned. Thank you it's for hosting. Yes. Motion to adjourn. <laughs> adjourn. I don't need one. We're doing it. Just adjourn. We're done. We'll just walk out. We're, we're just walking. Yeah, right. <laughs>